are entering the Freedom Hut. Less than 24 hours until the results start coming in for the midterm election of 2018. My friends, we will see if we can keep America getting greater or if the Democrats are going to have a foothold in the obstruction and impeachment to come. That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. In the last month alone, we added another 250,000 jobs and nearly a half a million Americans, it's now going to be almost 600,000 Americans returned to the workforce. Since Election Day, we've created 4.5 million new jobs. Think of that. The unemployment rate just fell to the lowest level in more than 50 years. More Americans are working today than ever before. Nearly 157 million Americans now have jobs. African-American, Hispanic-American, and Asian-American unemployment has reached the lowest levels in the history of our country. Wages, wages, beautiful wages for the first time in years. Wages are rising. Confidence is soaring. You saw the confidence level? Business confidence, consumer confidence, every form of confidence is at an all-time high or very close. And America is booming. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Everything that Donald said there was true. The economy is booming. Things are incredibly uh, strong. A lot of optimism in the markets, in jobs, in you name it. By objective measures, by the things that people care about day to day, the country's doing really well. The country is getting better all the time now. Uh, We have growth, we have prosperity, we have, dare I even say, a sense of overall optimism and the stability that comes from that too. People not being frightful of uh, the future in quite the same way, not afraid of what is waiting around the next turn in the road. Uh, I'm not talking about the left now because they're afraid of everything. They're afraid of impending fascism. They, They think any moment now, the great coup is going to happen and we're all going to get, you know, marched off into the FEMA camps or something. I mean, these people are out of their minds. And I mean prominent elected Democrats and multimillionaire TV hosts on cable networks that aren't Fox. Crazy. Completely lost it. But I, I wanted to start with that that uh, soundbite from Trump because the fact that we're even in uh, a a reality where the Democrats could win back the House tomorrow is just, it just blows my mind. It just blows my mind. What do we want to go back to so badly? We, we need to go back to what? Uh, higher taxes? We need to go back to Democrats fixating on things that don't really matter, but they act like they do because it gets their emotional base charged up what is it that what is it that the democrats if they were in power 
would start to do that would make this country better and stronger. And I'm I'm actually not aware of anything that they will do if they. I mean, they're not going to take the Senate. Uh, so and you know the way the show is going to work out tomorrow. By the way, I'm I'm going to some of you listen to me on a little bit of delay, so I won't. Really, I'm not going to focus on calling races. I'm just going to talk to you about election day as it comes as it comes together, and you know what we are, where we are day of, and what the stories are and everything because. You know, there's a there's a million different places. Like, oh, we got you know Indiana. The results are in Montana. The results are in. There's plenty of places you can do that stuff. Well, on this show, we'll talk about this stuff. And yeah, if I get any big, if there's any big stories to break while I'm still on air. Sorry, I just hit the microphone by accident. I hate when I do that. So JV Buck, don't do that. Um, but you know, it, it's something that we'll we'll certainly discuss. But there's a lot of places you go. I'm more interested in the macro. At the 30,000 foot level, at the like trajectory of America in a way that affects all of us and, and what we'll remember, you know, what, what is the reality of our current moment and what will be the reality of our history as it is written. That's, that's what matters to me. Not so much, you know, well, did this guy win and uh, I was 10th or did this other guy, you know, some people get so excited about the horse race part of this. That's just not really, uh, I want to know who's in charge and what the policies are and what does it mean? That's what I want to know. And we'll have a sense of that soon enough. But, you know, I, I wish I could tell you that if Democrats were going to win, they were win the House. They're not going to win the Senate. But if they win the House, they'll come in and they'll say, all right, we've got some serious ideas, some sensible ideas. And, you know, we think it's best for the American people. And here's what they are. That's not what's going to happen. You are going to see the... All of the lunacy, all of the hatred and the vitriol, the nastiness and the, the bitterness of the left that has been just just metastasizing for the last 18 months, you're going to see it reach a new level. If the Democrats take the House of Representatives tomorrow, there's not going to be any national healing. There is going to be a collective jihad against this president with investigations and impeachment and you name it, everything that they can come up with, they will do. The resistance will now all of a sudden, instead of just having media power, will have some degree of political power, some degree of not just the ability to obstruct, but the ability to go on offense. And that's what they're going to want to do. The the arguments otherwise, they, they don't even have any arguments worthy of the name. I mean, the arguments in favor of giving the Democrats the House of Representatives, oh, we, we need, I love this, they keep saying accountability. This is this is the poll-tested phrase. Oh, there seems to be accountability. Let's have balance. You know, the only way to keep Trump accountable is if you have the Democrats in control of the House. This this is really the pitch. I mean, this is what they're, the other than, oh, he's so racist and he's Hitler and all the stupid stuff that they say. But this notion of accountability is really a really a, a Trojan horse phrase, because what is accountability today, if they take the House of Representatives, will turn into a weapon in their hands. Right? What, they, what they say now is to have balance will quickly become a beachhead, as in we can start to wage the war against Trumpism in an effective way. They'll have a Ford operating base, the House of Representatives, from which to try and stop, stymie, and hobble this presidency. That's what they're looking to do. That's what will be, that's what's really on the ballot tomorrow. I, I know people think, oh, but, you know, I, I like my congressman or whatever, so I'll vote for him. These, you know, independents and people that are still on the fence. I just want to say, them, what are you still on the fence about? 
Well, what do you not know? You got one side that, you know, wants you got one side that wants bigger government, more taxes, more government control of your health care, open borders and killing babies for all nine months of a presidency. And, and lots of talk about how white people are racist. That's what one side of them represents. That's what one side represents, rather. That's what the left offers you. On the right, it's imperfect. You know, there's some corporate cronyism going on. and some. Other, but on the right, at least you got, yeah, we got the Constitution. We try to pay attention to it. It does matter to us. We believe people should be able to have religious freedom, you know, free speech, individual rights. Try to limit government where you can. Try to let people pursue happiness in their own way. You know, let people enjoy the fruits of their labors. It, yeah. Imperfect, but at least I can get down with all that. That sounds pretty good to me. The other stuff just sounds like a nightmare. That's why I'm a Republican. That's why I'm a conservative. By the way, I don't think that we should... People to try to separate those terms, I would take them to no no less than Reagan himself. was like, don't do not do that. Conservatism is the ideology of the Republican Party. At least it should be. I'm not saying they all are that conservative, but I don't try to parse these things. I, I, some people I know like to register for the conservative party. I mean, that's fine. I just, I don't really understand the point. Anyway. This is what's at stake. This is what we're really deciding tomorrow as, as a country. And it's going to be very narrow. And I think that we're also seeing one of two pathways. I mean, here's how this all shakes out. I, I don't think I'm going to, I'm not going to sit here and waste your time. I know a lot of people do this. And you know, let, me, let me tell you a little secret about political life, political world here in the, in the analyst side of it, you know, in the, in the pundit side of it. You get all these people, they, they, have all these little notes and things, and they're always trying to throw in the little tidbit that'll make you think they really know what's going on in that Montana, in that Montana congressional race. They don't know. They, they just learned it yesterday, and they'll forget it tomorrow. I mean, you know, you you can't. There's too many of these elections. You can't possibly have that much insight into that many elections. Yeah, there's some where there's big. You know, I talk about it too. Beto O'Rourke, Ted Cruz, you know, Stacey Abrams and Kemp. I mean, there's some of these races. You know, Gillum and DeSantis. Yeah, we we those are interesting, and we kind of care. But, you know, people try to take it overboard and it's like a who who can get the most into the political minutia. So I won't do that. I won't walk you through all the different congressional races that you know, are on the radar right now. And, you know, is Steve King going to hold his seat in Iowa? All the rest of it. Uh, instead, I'll just say this. What we are finding out tomorrow is at, at the level that matters most to us, because it, it really tomorrow just kicks off the 2020 election. I know people probably don't want to hear that, but it's true. It's true. Tomorrow's when we start thinking about who's going to run against Trump for 2020, because that's when the real power shift would happen. But within about a little more than, you know, it'll be about 28 hours or so, I guess, or, you know, closer to 30 hours. Um, we'll find out if Democrats begin the 18-month-long food fight of impeachment and, uh, you know, investigations that are just meant to stall and and be a thorn in the side of the republicans etc etc that's on the one and that's if they win the house if they lose the house then you have a situation where you might have a, a collective meltdown of the left where there will not be an ocean large enough to contain all the liberal tears i mean they will lose it because what does it say if after two years of not just Trump's policies, but of, of Trump being Trump. The American people, based on the system we have, which I know people say, oh, but what about the popular vote? You know, there's no popular vote in the House. I'll get to that in a moment. These people are really stretching. Um, 
But based on the system we have, the American people have said, yes, we have been, we have been subjected to Trumpism. And you know what? We like it. It's good. It's working out. All of the commentators and the Democrat political apparatus that have been telling us about how racist this country is, how racist Trump is, how terrible and the rise of the white nationalists and the fascism, it'll mean that a majority of normal people say, yeah, that's just a lot of, lot of malarkey, a lot of nonsense. It's just not, it's not true. It doesn't really matter. It's not what's really going on. And this is just a giant temper tantrum from the left that's been going on for, you know, about 18 months. You know, Russia collusion, by the way, they're going to have that. That that's going to come out after the election. And, and trust me, here, here's an early prediction that I'm very confident of. If the Democrats take the House, no matter what the Mueller report that they say is going to be released after the election, has, no matter what it says, they will claim that there's a need for much more investigation, much. So after the special counsel, there'll have to be more investigations. That's what's going to happen. You know, you, you, if you haven't heard it anywhere else, you're hearing it here first. That's where we're going to go. Because, you know, this is what the Democrats, this is what they have for you. Uh, the politics of whining, victimology, identity politics, and personal destruction. That's, that's the left. So, you know, you can go cast a vote for a Democrat tomorrow and, and you know, put your thumb, you know, stick your thumb up for, uh, for collectivism and statism. Or, or you can try to keep riding out this Trump wave and see how much further he can take the country. Because so far, it's working out pretty well. It's not perfect, but it's good, man. Way beyond what anyone uh, realistically, I think, would have thought early on in the in the Republican primary. I mean, Trump is every month. I'm every month. I'm happier and happier with his presidency. Every month, I'm like, this guy's getting better and better. It's just the truth. The caravan and immigration are obviously going to uh, are, are weighing very heavily in these last minute attempts to try to sway people. We'll talk a bit about that. We've got uh, that, and then. Uh, a whole lot more, a whole lot more stuff, including uh, how the liberal media is acting like a bunch of maniacs. No surprise there. It's going to be a phenomenal show, team. We'll be right back. Democrats want to invite caravan after caravan of illegal aliens to pour into our country. I don't think so. I don't think so. No nation can allow its borders to be overrun. And that's an invasion. I don't care what they say. I don't care what the fake media says. That's an invasion of our country. They don't like the way Trump talks about immigration, but here's the other truth that they avoid at all costs. The Democrats have become an extremist party on immigration, uh, meaning that they admire and really encourage rampant illegality. In fact, I thought it was so funny uh, some of the oh-so-serious newsmen over at CNN, I've caught, no, I've noticed uh, recently, caught them saying undocumented immigrant. No, that's an idiot term. That's a, that's not the term. That's not the word. That's a made-up term. All right, they are in the United States illegally. There is a a there's a term for that in legal code. It is an illegal alien. They are breaking the law. They are in violation of the law. This is not up for debate or discussion. They're not undocumented. They are illegal. But the Democrats have become a party of extremists on this one. And this also fits into their whole rubric of uh, white privilege and the whole paradigm of how everything now that the, the Republicans stand for, the Constitution, rule of law, it's all somehow part of a, 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 a white conspiracy 
uh, in this country. I mean, I, the, the amount of times I've heard recently that Donald Trump is dog whistling to white nationalists. I'm like, what? You know, white nationalists. I mean, they, they talk about white supremacy now as anything that that has to do with the the uh, percentage of this country that is white is somehow tied into this term. White supremacy used to be the KKK and it used to be neo-Nazis. And now they'll talk about white supremacy as, you know, well, we don't like we don't like this or that policy. It really ties into white supremacy. I mean, it's crazy when you look at what the left is saying these days. It really is. Um, they're taking these terms and using them recklessly and they're redefining them, too. Uh, but the, the caravan has gotten a lot of attention recently. Because people are saying, oh, well, he, he's fear-mongering on this. First of all, Trump didn't create the caravan. So let's stop with this. This isn't some Trump conspiracy. That's crazy. And then you go to what people are allowed to say and not say, look, all of the major cable news networks, from what I understand, have actually pulled this ad. Here is the controversial Stop the Caravan ad that was run uh, by, the, by, the Geo, by someone, I forget who it was, associated with the GOP. Play 15. The 7,000 migrant caravan crossing Mexico, marching toward our border. Dangerous, illegal criminals like cop killer Luis Bracamontes don't care about our laws. America cannot allow this invasion. The migrant caravan must be stopped. President Trump and his allies will protect our border and keep our families safe. America's future depends on you. Stop the caravan. Vote Republican. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. How is that ad racist exactly? I mean, you could say that it's exaggerated. A lot of political ads are. You could say that there's it's a little a little fast and loose with some of the association there. But yeah, that guy, Branca Monte or whatever, he he murdered cops. He came into the country. He's an illegal. He came to the country illegally. He didn't come in the caravan, but they're saying there's MS. I know there are MS-13 members because I've talked to journalists who are with the caravan. So there's some MS-13 members there. And, you know, we don't want any illegal immigration to the country. So one MS-13 member among the caravan is too many. But how is the ad racist? It's been pulled from all these major cable channels. And I'm sitting around, I'm saying, I mean, you can say you don't like it. You can say it's heavy handed, but racist. I, I thought we were I thought we all didn't want illegal immigration. Oh, no, that's right. Democrats do want illegal immigration. That's that's what really doesn't get talked about. Is there any prospect of finding common ground with the Democrats if, in fact, they do take control in the House of Representatives in the election? Do you have areas that you expect, whether it's on Medicare reform, perhaps on raising social, uh, raising the minimum wage, dealing with Social Security, any area where the White House has an expectation that the Democrats will come together with them to work on legislation of any kind? Well, Buck, I, I think we're going to expand our majority in the United States Senate, and I think we're going to hold our Republican majority in the House of Representatives. But that being said, that there is certainly common ground, areas that we can work, uh, that the president has laid out. Going to hold the majority, the vice president told me on Friday. I, I certainly hope so. I like his optimism. I like uh, I like where his head's at on that one. Uh, there's going to be some races that everybody focuses in on and, and gets get a lot of attention in the House and in the Senate. Probably the single biggest one right now. I mean, although, remember, you heard it here first. Cruz going to win by 10. Cruz going to win by 10. He's going gonna, gonna to beat Beto. Beto's going to be so sad. He's going to have to ride his little skateboard all the way home, but hopefully he doesn't run anybody over on the skateboard because then he'll have to flee the scene again. Uh, but uh, we have Florida. 
a very, very big election going on down in Florida with uh, Gillum and and all of that. Uh, Trump has is, is pointed out that Gillum is really a symptom of a much larger political trend here uh, towards socialism. And here's what the president said about it. Play clip three, please. The people of Florida are going to head to the polls to elect an incredible new senator. Your governor, Rick Scott, and Ron is running against really a radical socialist named Andrew Gillum. Gillum will tax and regulate your jobs into oblivion. Wants to abolish ICE. Can you believe that? Tuesday, I need the people of Florida to send a message to cry in Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Maxine Waters, and the radical Democrats by voting for Ron DeSantis and Rick Scott. If this election is based on crowds, they might as well cancel it because we won. I certainly hope that Trump's right and that the people do the right thing here. And, and that, I mean, just imagine what it's going to be like if Republicans hold the House. I mean, they're going to they're going to hold the Senate. Who knows by how much? I think I think they end up with 55 Republican Senate votes again. This which means they almost run the table of what's possible. Um, but I I, uh, I think that the House, you know, we'll see. Who knows? Right. Predictions right now are worth anything. We're going to know tomorrow. Who, who cares about what I say today about that? Although my 55 number, if I get the Ted Cruz one right, I'll just be happy because I've been trolling libs for a long time now with how Beto is going to get crushed. But there's another another thing that's popping up in the background here because, uh, you know, and, and you, you should be aware of it. And that is that the left is in kind of preemptive fashion, starting to make a little bit of noise about a crisis of legitimacy within the system itself. Essentially, this is their... Fail safe. This is how they're hedging their bets if they, say, don't win the House of Representatives, control the House of Representatives. Then then you're going to hear a whole story. Because remember, the fail safe back in 2016 turned into Russia collusion and Hillary. Hello! You know, Hillary really did win and all this other stuff. They're, they're setting up now early stages of, you know, the, the uh, refrain for why they, if they lose the House, which they're, Assuming they won't, but they're prepared for the worst. They're going to say it's that our elections aren't even really legitimate anymore. This from the people who always complain about Trump undermining our institutions. Ezra Klein, who is kind of king of the beta males, uh, I think that's a fair description, and is is still very revered in left-wing circles, even though he, he says some things that are just shockingly inept, but and is very smarmy. I've, I've heard him in a number of different debates and forums where he's just... He's just getting trounced and just sort of falls back on like, well, I'm Ezra Klein at the end of the day. And it's like, well, no one cares. Well, at least I don't care. Uh, But he tweeted this out today, which I thought was really interesting because it's a window into the mind of the left. Quote, I don't think people are ready for the crisis that will follow if Democrats win the House popular vote, but not the majority. After Kavanaugh, Trump, Garland, Citizens United, Bush v. Gore, etc., the party is on the edge of losing faith in the system, and reasonably so, end quote. That's another way of saying, we better win or else. They cheated. It's not fair. A few things about this. First of all, there's no such thing as a popular vote in the House. That's a bizarre thing to say. A lot of places, people don't even show up and vote because they know they're uh, in a district where they're three to one Democrat to Republican. So what's the point? 
and it's playing out in these local elections across the country. The notion of a popular vote in the House is just absurd. Also, because of the way primary rules work, it you know in places like California, it really complicates what the what the popular vote would even be, and you know you still have congressmen representing seven hundred thousand people, even if in one district they get a lot of votes, in another they get a few votes. So there's apportionment that way. But more importantly uh, than all that stuff is, oh, I see. So when the Democrats don't get their way, it must be unfair and the system can't be trusted. Maybe they should just, just for a moment before tomorrow, and you know, to the Democrats who are listening, however many of you there are, just try this. Think about what really happens day to day in your life. Think about what's going on in the country that matters, that is of consequence. And then think about what Trump has been doing and then tell me whether or not that has been good. If you are being honest, everything that is measurable, that is tangible, that is real, is going well. And Trump is doing a good job. It's not perfect, but it's moving in the right direction. Why would you want to set that back to go for the, oh, there are 37 genders Democrat Party? The delusional, anti-faith, anti-science, anti-truth, anti-integrity Democrats. Why do that? There is not a compelling reason. So that's my last-minute pitch, why everybody should vote Republican and down-ticket all the way tomorrow. We'll be right back. Usually people give people like you uh, elevator pitches about things. What's your elevator pitch to the American people right before they go into the ballots, right before they actually cast their votes? What should, what should they be thinking? Well, I, I think they just should be thinking about the choice in this election. It really is a choice uh, between resistance and results. I mean, the other party literally has no agenda, as far as I can tell, uh, other than resisting the, the agenda this president was elected to advance and unwinding it. I mean, the Democrats talk about uh, repealing uh, the tax cuts that we passed into law, uh, repealing the regulatory relief that we passed into law, both of which have allowed for this economic expansion that we're seeing, the economic boom that's happening today. I mean, literally, their agenda is to reverse the progress that's creating jobs and opportunities and enhancing the security and, and frankly, the stature of America around the world. So I, I think what I would encourage people to do is simply look at the results, and if you like what you're seeing, in a stronger military, a stronger commitment to law and order and law enforcement. If you like seeing 4.5 million jobs, a growing economy, and constitutional conservatives appointed to our courts at every level, then vote Republican, and we'll keep it going. So there you have the the final pitch that I got from his lips to my ears. Well, no, that sounds weird, but you know what I mean. Like face-to-face, <laughs> that's a better way of saying it. Um, is from his lips to God's ears, that makes sense, right? But if it's from someone's lips to your ears and you're right there, that sounds like that sounds like a different kind of show. Uh, but anyway, that was the Vice President Pence who was saying, uh, you know, look, I mean, all Democrats can really offer is uh, all they can really offer is what they've been offering, which is a lot of complaining and. Everything that the that the president has done, everything that that conservatives have gotten in the Congress, and they just want to undo those things, including things that are objectively obviously good. I mean, the the lack 
it, it, has anyone died? Has anything terrible happened because of the fewer? Remember that it's, it's not like they're all gone because of the slightly less oppressive degree of government regulations in this country. You know, is, is there anyone who's you know so terribly off now because of that? I, I think we I think we know the answer. But oh no, Democrats! Oh, they need to have we need to have more regulations. They've gotten rid of those climate regulations that Obama put in place. Oh my gosh, this is insane. This is insane. By the way, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, I think, uh, said it nicely today, uh, talking about this one. Play clip five. I, look, I still hope that Republicans win the House, but if they don't, I think that what you've seen the Democrats start talking about is the only message they have, and that's one of obstruction. They have no policies. They have no solutions. America's got some real problems that we have to deal with, and it's another reason that when people are going to the ballot boxes tomorrow, they need to look at what type of America they want to have, one of a party that has solutions, somebody that's leading, or a group that only wants to obstruct and tear people down, which is exactly what you're seeing come out of the Democrats. I would like to just take a moment to point out that how much did you hear the media talk about obstructionism and obstructionist and all all the obstruction, obstruction in the Obama era when they no longer had a majority in the House? You heard about it all the time. I mean, the media were constantly... If they wouldn't do what Obama wanted, they were obstructionist. If they wouldn't do what the Democrats wanted, they were obstructionist. And you'll just notice, you, you, you don't hear that now, even though the Democrats will do nothing with this president. They, they have no interest in any legislation with this president. They have no interest in any solutions with this president. Nothing at all. I mean, in a sense, politics, then it's just become zero-sum. We've got elections that determine who gets to do some of the stuff they want to do, and the other side just just sort of complains and says, you know, give us back power. We'll do some stuff. This is that's really the truth. You know, I mean, we, we the, the Democrats have no no solutions. No, it is. Oh, that's right. Their big thing is to just continue to pound the drum on healthcare and precious conditions. Folks, let me just before we, we all get into this rabbit hole, pre-existing conditions are a very uh, emotionally powerful issue. Because there are these stories, and, and there's something that does feel fundamentally unfair in a wealthy, developed society like ours about people that are just told, you have to struggle for your whole life because even though we have this incredible healthcare system, you, you know, you draw a short straw, you drew a short straw, and you can't get real insurance, and now you're going to, you know, now you're just going to be going through one uh, difficult series of financings after another to try to get some way to pay for your treatment and, you know, sell your house or if you don't have, a, you know, all that stuff, right? We, we understand there's a resonance that that resonates with people. Okay, fine. First off, that is a very percentage wise, small amount of the population that is truly uninsurable for a preexisting condition. Generally speaking, generally speaking, what you have with a when we're talking about previous conditions are that, you know, insurance companies to keep costs down won't won't pay for or or deal with certain things that come up because they think they can get away with it. Right. So it's a cost saving measure, but it's not something that you have a chronic lifetime illness necessarily. It's just, oh, that, you know, we're not going to pay for that surgery because that back injury occurred under, you know, when you weren't insured or, you know, whatever it is. Right. So that's really, you know, we always think of it as, oh my gosh, somebody who has this lifelong illness. That's really not 
what we're always talking about. It is part of it, but now we're always talking about when we're discussing pre-existing conditions. Okay, so that's that's important to remember too. A lot of pre-existing conditions is you switch insurance, you got a period of uninsured time, and the comp- and the insurance company says we're not going to pay for your tonsillectomy because we think you got, you know, your tonsillitis or whatever when you weren't insured, right? And this is, and the, people hate insurance companies for doing that, but you know, th- this is this is what you deal with. And this is why we we do. There is a role, unfortunately, whether people want to believe it or not. There's a role that government's already playing in healthcare with all this stuff. People say, "Oh, you know, I, I hate government involvement in healthcare." You know, until it comes from time for Medicare, and then all of a sudden people like their government involvement in healthcare. And this is the truth. All right, we're talking. We have big boy converse and girl, big boy and girl conversations here. We're not going to just do it with the talking points. You know, uh, yeah, the free market would be great. It would make things much better. We don't have a free market in healthcare. We don't even have anything close to a free market in healthcare. So we, we might as well not pretend that we do. Um, but Sarah Huckabee Sanders spoke specifically about this in pre-existing conditions. And, and here's where Republicans are on this. Play clip six. The president's been clear. Whatever policy he puts forth on health care, it will protect pre-existing conditions. There are some people out there uh, in the country that want to tell you a different story. But at the end of the day, the president's going to do what is necessary to protect people with pre-existing mm-hmm. conditions, but also create a health care system that actually works, that actually functions, that has competition, that creates an environment where people get the type of health care that they need, not just uh, a card right. that says that they have health insurance. Those right. are two very different things and this president wants to make sure people have actual right. health care not just health insurance right and, and, and you know what, what people don't discuss with Obamacare and the pre-existing conditions thing is okay so you, you can get coverage and maybe you get on one of these Obamacare exchanges but you're, you're generally out of all the best networks and the best doctors so let's just say if, if you have an Obamacare plan in Texas for example what's up KLBJ Austin uh, if you have a you know a, a health care Obamacare plan down in, in Texas and you want to go to, I think, what is it? Uh, Anderson. Well, I forget what the name of the really fancy, uh, you know, high end cancer uh, clinic is, but you, you can't go to it. You, you don't, you can't, you're not in that, that uh, hospital system. You know, you end up going to the, I don't know how else to say it, the kind of bootleg weak sauce hospital system on the Obamacare plan. So, you know, th- th- everyone's led to believe, oh, well, you've got coverage. Now everything's great. That's just not true. What kind of coverage do you have? How, how accessible is it to you? And those are where the market forces come into play, which is why you want as robust a free market in healthcare as you can have so people are incentivized to deliver more healthcare more cheaply to more people, to make money. That's right. There, there has to be a monetary incentive for this. If you're just relying on the, on the, the government's whims and you know, the charity of bureaucrats, you're going to be very, very disappointed with your healthcare system. But the pre-existing conditions, here, sure enough, here we are. Obamacare was, I can't remember now, 1,700 pages long or something, thousands of pages of addendums, who even knows? Obamacare was this massive bill. And now we're up for a midterm election in 24 hours, and all we're being told is, oh, pre-existing conditions. There's a lot more to health care than pre-existing conditions. And there are plenty of ways to protect pre-existing conditions without destroying or, you know, protect coverage for them without destroying the rest of our healthcare system. Remember, Obamacare has really only been enacted for people in the individual market. Just imagine if they had gotten what they wanted and had control of the whole healthcare market with Obamacare. Think about that. If it really affected employer-sponsored plans. That's what Democrats want to do. That's why they want to get single-payer.
Team, I'm all about taking your health and your fitness into your own hands. Teeter inversion tables are incredible. They let you use gravity and your body weight to decompress your spine and relieve pressure on your discs and surrounding nerves. Over 3 million people have put their trust in these teeter inversion tables. You've got to try it for yourself. They're offering a great deal just for my listeners. For a limited time, you can get the brand new 2019 Teeter Fit Spine Inversion Table Model with bonus accessories and a free pair of gravity boots so you can invert at home or take the boots with you to the gym. Teeter Inversion Tables have thousands of reviews on Amazon and are rated at 4.6 stars. And with this deal, you'll get $150 off when you go to teeter.com slash buck. You'll also get free shipping, free returns, a 60-day money-back guarantee, absolutely no risk to try it out. You can only get the new 2019 Teeter Fitzbine Inversion Table plus a free pair of gravity boots by going to teeter.com slash buck. That's teeter.com slash buck. Dan Crenshaw. Uh, oh, come on, man. Yeah. Hold on. Uh, you may be surprised to hear he's a congressional candidate from Texas and not a hitman in a porno movie. <laughs> I'm sorry, I know he lost his eye in, in war or whatever. Whatever. Hey, whatever. Morons. Morons. I mean, SNL is, you know, I, I, I don't get too fixated on different aspects of pop culture because, one, I, I, I think pop culture is supposed to be an escape. It's supposed to be entertainment for all of us. It's not, I don't go to pop culture to learn because there's very little, if anything, to learn in pop culture. I don't go to pop culture for insight. I go to pop culture to essentially turn my brain off. Pop culture is the equivalent of the frozen chicken nuggets that I eat when I'm too lazy to make real food, okay? It gets the job done. It, you know, it feels good, but it's a waste. But that doesn't mean that all pop culture should just get a pass for its stupidity its uh, immaturity and its destructive tendencies. You know, Saturday Night Live is a comedy show. It's a comedy show that I have many fond memories of back in the era of Dana Carvey and Mike Myers and, you know, uh, Chris Farley. I mean, I think it really stood up well in that era or really stands up well still, I mean, today from that era. And it was about making people laugh. Yeah, they made fun of politicians. You know, sure, there's Dana Carvey. You know, hey, I'm Ross Perot. You know, all that's. But it was laughing at politicians in a way that we were all supposed to laugh. It was not one side looking at the other side and saying, ha, 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 stupid, racist, white people, ha, 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 which is all the left does now. And it's so tiresome. It's comedy for stupid people, which is not what they want to hear because they think that it makes them smart to laugh at this stuff. But I mean, that was a perfect example of it. So Crenshaw is a former Navy SEAL who lost his eye and sight in that eye, obviously, uh, because of an IED in Afghanistan. I believe he sort of served five tours of, of combat, uh, combat tours in Afghanistan. And I mean, the guy is a straight up badass and he's an American hero. And it's, uh, you know, it's somebody, hey, by the way, I think he's somebody you're going to really see at the national political level going forward. I, I really hope, I do think he will win his congressional race, although it's pretty tight from the polls I've seen, but I do think he'll win. He's running down in Texas. And, you know, I, I just, I, I believe he's the kind of person that the right and conservatives are, you know, can really get behind, really respect and, and see a bright future for him politically. I mean, he's already done more than most of us will ever do in our lifetime to serve country and to, uh, and to be an honorable and, and worthwhile person. 
But I mean, add on to that the public service he could do in office. And, you know, there's a there's a lot of upside for Mr. Crenshaw, hopefully soon to be Congressman Crenshaw. But I mean, you know, for somebody on SNL, but this guy, Pete Davidson, John, does anyone find this guy funny? I mean, have you seen him anywhere before? I mean, he's funny looking maybe, but is any, you know, where did this guy come? I see some of these people and they're all of a sudden supposed to be famous. We're supposed to know they are. And I go, why? There's nothing about them that's remarkable. They're not funny. They're not talented. Look, Jim Carrey, for example, has the politics of, you know, a 14 year old, uh, you know, a 14 year old child really doesn't know anything about anything. I mean, really limited on the, but he's a, in his day, a wildly talented comedian, you know, with all the facial stuff and the voices and everything. I mean, he was very, very amusing. So I understand why he's rich and famous. He's still an idiot on politics, but I understand why he's rich and famous. I see a lot of these people these days where I don't even know why I'm supposed to know who this person is. What is I, I've never seen him be funny. I remember, by the way, during the roast of Rob Lowe, I think Ann Coulter showed up to that. And Pete Dominic was just horrible to her. I mean, saying terrible stuff, not funny stuff, like saying mean, degrading, degradatory, degrading things uh, to Ann. You know, Ann Coulter, I mean, she's a rock star. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't give a crap. But still, you know, he's just a classless, gross little, little. And I shouldn't call him a clown because clowns are funny. He's not that. He's uh, just a snide, nasty little troll. And, uh, yeah, clowns can be scary, as John points out. And he's this guy's definitely not scary. But I just can't imagine. I can't imagine going on national TV and, and think, by the way, this is a joke. I'm sure he wrote this joke out beforehand. They, they write all these things out. That was a joke that he had scripted. So it wasn't an off-the-cuff thing. I always tell you guys, I, you know, I mean, I'll never make a mistake like this guy on this kind of thing. But, you know, one day I'm going to let something slip that is off the cuff or is an accident, and I'm going to have to ask for uh, the forbearance and forgiveness of my audience for either maybe letting a little four-letter word slip or something. That's going to happen one day. I'm not perfect. But there are things that could happen to normal people, especially if you're speaking extemporaneously, and there are the things that happen because of leftist jerks who have no respect and no decency, and those are not the same. And this guy obviously falls in the latter category. He scripted this joke out, and he is is making I mean, he's making fun of it. Who makes fun of a Navy SEAL's eye patch? Well, period, but a Navy SEAL who lost his eye to an IED in combat. Who makes fun of that? How could anyone ever think that that is funny? You know, I mean, I, I'm I'm not a I'm not a person who's who's prone to violence, but you know, I think about how, you know, I've I've had the uh you know the 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 pleasure, the honor to work with um you know Joey Jones, who's an IED tech. Who lost both of his le- both of his legs uh, in Afghanistan defusing bombs to save soldiers and civilians? And I just think about how I mean, if I was in the room and somebody made some off offhand remark about you know, and I don't even I don't know Joey well. I've just worked with him, but someone made some remark about what happened to him. I mean, I, I somebody would probably have to hold me back. You know, it, it's just there are there are limits, right? There are things that you can't just say, you can't just do. Yeah, And what just drove me insane, I knew this would happen too, because this is a bad look for the Democrats right beforehand, uh, that they were saying, oh, the people that are so opposed to political correctness, now they're being politically correct. No, 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 no. Okay, that, that's an idiotic talking. That's stupidity. Only a moron would say that. And lots of people have said it. So just track down who said it, and these are morons. Uh, because no one says that being anti-PC 
doesn't mean that you think that there, everyone should have a license to walk around and be a complete sick maniac all the time with no consequences. You know, being anti-PC means you, you think that you should be able to make a joke about, you know, women and and something that is anti-PC. I couldn't think of something off the cuff that wasn't probably going to get me in trouble. But I'm just saying, you know, like I, I, th- I think about my friend Jesse Kelly and how look at some of his humor and, you know, he obviously loves his wife very much. He makes little jokes about his wife and, you know, husband to wife stuff and male, female. And, you know, that's being non-PC. Being non-PC does not mean, for example, that, you know, you'd be the kind of person who would make uh, make jokes about somebody who has a, a life-threatening illness. Or that would mock somebody who has uh, a severe disability or Down syndrome or something like that. That just makes you a... a a blankety blank blank. I mean, that, that just makes you a bad person. So th- th- there's a line, right? We can designate. And so making a joke about somebody losing their eye to an IED when they're serving on the front lines of Afghanistan, it's not about being politically correct. It's just about don't be a complete friggin' jerk. That's all. And But the left was, they were trying to find some narrative to cover this. And I know, look, I've, I've given them more error on my show talking about this little buffoon than, than I should in a sense too. But, you know, this is the, the takeaway I have from this. It's much more common than anybody wants to admit, but on the left, there from these pajama boy types, there's a lot of a lot of resentment and disdain for our warrior class, uh, which I was not a part of, but I I was out there to assist them. Right? I mean, I was bringing them bringing them their armor, so to speak. If we're going to take this back to biblical times, right? I mean, I, I was trying to help, uh, you know, helping them find targets, but. The, the pajama boy class of Democrats, it's always lefties in this country, they, they don't always talk about it because they know that, oh, everyone's supposed to support the veterans, right? You know, Republicans say it and their chests swell with pride. A lot of Democrats, not all, they're Democrats who, you know, and this is where, of course, they'll trot out like the, the handful of really prominent Democrats who served in the military. Oh, look at this person. Are you going to say it? I, I know. There are Democrats who are as red-blooded patriots as anybody else. I get it, you know, who served in the military. But there's a whole contingent on the left. I mean, there's a, you know, if you're kind of anti-military as an American, or if you have a, a little bit of a, a chip on your shoulder or a, about the military, disdain for the military, you're a leftist. You just are. You know, if, if you think that, oh, we make too much of a big deal about the military at NFL games and blah, 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 and, you know, you know, you're down for the kneeling and all this stuff, you're a leftist. You just are ideologically that's you know that's where they are and these these pajama boys a lot of them harbor a certain resentment for the military and so they like to take little cheap shots here and there but i I hope that this results in the voters uh sending a bit of a rebuke to the left for this i know he's not a politician but he's a comedian he's on a national platform and the left tends to defend this crap so we should uh tell him to stop Team, by now you've probably heard me talk about Snippy.com, which is a new social media site. If you looked at Snippy.com and left, look again. Thousands of Team Buck folks have joined Snippy.com, expressing their opinions and stirring up lively conversations. Snippy is an unbiased social media platform that's all about conversation and community. Snippy not only encourages freedom of expression, but guarantees its users the ability to discuss topics freely without suppression from administrators. Snippy is a place where everyone is free to express their thoughts on politics, sports, current events, food, fashion, anything really. And, you know, you can tell the world about what makes you snippy. 
totally free to join, open to everyone. Join us at snippy.com. Let your opinion be heard. Let your opinion matter. No shadow banning, no suppression of conservative thought ever. Now with an updated user interface and exciting new features, also available in the Apple App Store and now for Android 2, Snippy, your alternative social media. It's very complex, but part of it is because um, the privilege that you receive as a white person, right? You, you can walk around and not fear the police and that they're going to be violent towards you. And, and there are privileges that come along with walking around with white skin. I mean, they're just, you, you can look it up. It's, it's called the invisible backpack. Um, if you wanted to sort of do the academic reading on um, where white, the idea of white privilege comes from. And so people are benefiting from a system that puts them at the top of the hierarchy. And this is one of the most destructive slogans, ideological frameworks, concepts, one of the most destructive ones out there right now. And it's one that, that manifests itself in many different ways in the media and in, and in politics today. And that's this notion of white privilege. And, and this is where you know that I, my frustrations with the left are often expressed with the phrase, what does that mean? And I ask that question because you can keep pushing on it, and if you follow it, you see more and more that the answer is they don't know. They're not even sure. They just like what it indicates, or they like what it gives them, or they like what it does for them politically. But what does it really mean is a much harder question for the left on many issues. We're talking about transgender rights is one, but you know when you start pushing them, okay, well, if, if gender is a spectrum— you know, what, what does that mean? What are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to work with that? And they go, oh, you know, don't be such a bigot. Well, hold on. I'm just asking a very relevant and necessary question. And on this notion of white privilege, okay, so how do we quantify white privilege? What, what are we to do about white privilege? In fact, I would like someone to make a philosophical argument as to why is it that it is my responsibility to take action to offset something that I have no responsibility for, as in my skin pigmentation. Why is that on me? How can I have, I mean, th this goes to the very foundation of ethics and the relationship between the individual and the polity, the political community around all of us. How is it that I can be held morally responsible for something that I have no more moral responsibility for? Why should I have to hear these lectures about white privilege when I've done nothing to advance white privilege actively or passively that I'm aware of in my life? I just live my life as a human being. Um, but also just as a, as a public policy matter. So, I mean, that's on the ethical level, this notion of white privilege is is gross. It's wrong. It's not true. And if there's so much white privilege, I'd also like to know, okay, so why is it that the average Asian household, Asian American household, has a greater, uh, greater household income than the average white American household? So is there Asian privilege? In, in, and by the way, what, what is the privilege? You know, I always ask that question too, and we're told, oh, well, it's, it means you can walk around the department store without being followed. That's not true. If you go into a department store and you look like a, you know, a, a shady-looking white guy who maybe he's going to cause problems or steal something, they'll follow you around. You know, this, this is this is just reality, folks, right? Anybody, it just depends on what that specific store security guard or detective or whomever decides they're going to do uh, based on the indicators that they see in the, in the situation. But 
Uh, you know, I always get, and, and, you know, th- then they always turn to this, and we'll talk more about hate crimes later on in the show, because it's really interesting stuff out of New York City on that. Who's doing all the anti-Semitic hate crimes in New York? Just put a pin in that, because well, it's not conservatives. Uh, but also, you know, you'd always hear that one of the things about white privilege, for example, would be, oh, well, white people can get a cab in a place like New York. And I, I remember actually some people paid attention to this at the time because John Stewart was another when he was the Daily Show. Oh, you know, you know, Barack Obama, black America. It hasn't really changed all that much. Blah, blah, blah. You know, you still can't get a cab in New York if you're black. It was something um, I'm, you know, going off memory here, but it was something about how in the Obama era, you know, you can't get a cab in New York. And just putting aside what the specific backstory of that John Stewart moment was, I remember him talking about this, and I and I went Aaron and went on air and said, "Okay, well, let's assume for a moment that it is true that black people have a harder time getting a, a cab in New York City. Overwhelmingly, cab drivers in New York City are recent immigrants to the country, as in the last five to seven years. Overwhelmingly, those recent immigrants come from one part of the world, South Asia." The dominant uh, representation of Pakistani, Bangladeshi, and uh, Indian uh, immigrants in the New York City cab drivers. This is a fact. It's like 60, 70% of them. So when you're talking about the racism of cab drivers in New York City, let's just be specific. You're really talking about the racism of South Asian, Pakistani guys who got to America about three years ago and don't want to pick up somebody that they think is going to take them to a dangerous neighborhood, or maybe they're just racist and don't want to pick somebody up because they're black, whatever the case may be. At least let's be specific about it. Now, that's a bad thing, but it's not its not white privilege. It's not white dudes. It's not KKK, white person racism. It's something else. Left never really deals with it. But the left also pretends that the only racism that exists in the world is American racism. The only country that ever has had a legacy of slavery is America. I mean, all this stuff, right? They, they're so ahistorical in their discussions of all these issues because it's really about power and uh, victimology and and blaming the oppressor in this country. Uh, but the, I just I just have to note that you know whenever whenever this topic of white privilege comes up and and these discussions about race that are happening in this country and they'll talk about how there's a a white lash they said that over at CNN uh, they'll talk about how uh, all all opposition immigration is rooted in racism. I just want to know, so are we all supposed to sit around and constantly apologize for being white and do everything we can to work against the whiteness paradigm? What what really is the solution to white privilege other than constant complaining, including from a lot of white people who are liberals who just want to sound like they're the ones who care about the issue? Again, what does this mean? White privilege is what? An excuse to complain about uh, complain about the other forever? Is that what it is? Do we ever overcome? How do we overcome white privilege? By the way, white people are still about 60, 65% of the U.S. population. So we, we are a majority. So what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to strive for uh, minority status? I, I, I don't, I never have, all I have are lectures and complaints and people that will tie this into any issue that they want but there's really no data to speak of to support it. By the way, her thing about uh, being able to, you know, not be worried about cops, it's actually not true. And the, the people that talk about these issues don't care about data. They don't care about numbers. They don't care, you know, don't even get into like what the numbers we're talking about here of, of different hot button issues within different communities. Oh boy, you're going to get a lot of trouble. But the truth is, and the, the, the most comprehensive study of this shows that 
for the same conduct, actually, a white suspect is more likely to be met with lethal force by police of any race in this country than a black suspect. And why is that, folks? Oh, that's right, because the cops are worried about being considered racist. Even when they're dealing with somebody who's an imminent threat. That's how not racist America actually is. Bipartisanship, if possible, stand our ground like a rock, if not, and to try to unify the country. We are not them. We do not act the way they do. But I do think that when you're in the arena and somebody throws a punch, you better be able to take a punch and throw a punch. Yes! (laughs) Yes! Yes, I love that story. Yes. Okay, got it. Yes. Pelosi says you got to be willing to throw a punch. This is what really struck me about this. Pardon the turn of phrase there, but this is what really uh, stuck out to me about what she says. We're not going to be like they are. This is one of those places where I, I can't have a a straightforward conversation with the other side because I think it's like I'm talking to a crazy person. Uh, you know, it's like I'm sitting there saying, okay, so... You know, what, what, do you want to go get lunch? The person says, I'm already eating lunch. I'm having roast pink elephant and it flew onto my table. How do you have a conversation with somebody when they're saying that? It's not easy. I'm not saying you can't. It's not easy to do though. And Pelosi, if she thinks what it seems that she thinks, which is that the, the conservatives and the Republicans play so rough and play so dirty and her side is always acting in this gentlemanly fashion, I don't know how to have a conversation with somebody who's that delusional. I don't know how you can really address them in a way where you can find any any common ground or find any means of of reaching a greater understanding of each other's positions when their position is just just nuts. The left has been running around acting like a bunch of lunatics in the you know for the whole era of Trump, I mean, you go back to the inauguration. There are people lighting cars on fire. None of that happened when Obama became president. There weren't riots in the streets of Washington D.C. Never mind of Portland and these other you know left wing loon strongholds. Uh, by the way, I love that Trump. You know, Trump mocks these Antifa guys, and uh, you know here he he went after them in one of his speeches recently. Play sixteen. The contrast in this election could not be more clear. Republicans produce jobs. Democrats produce mobs. You've heard that. You've seen it. You've seen it. Antifa. They take the helmet off. And they take the armbands. And you see these little arms. These little arms. And then they see the clubs in their hands. You know, they're tough guys, right? But you see these guys, you take off their helmet, their black helmet, their black outfit with the pads, or tough guys, you know, and they're swinging clubs viciously. They couldn't care less who they hit. These are bad people. These are people causing problems, and the press doesn't want to talk about them. If the radical resistance, and that's what they are, radical resistance, takes power, They will move immediately to reverse America's progress and to eradicate all of the gains that we've made. 
That's right. Antifa, a bunch of little left-wing radicals. Keep in mind, they're not repudiated by the left. A lot of people say that Antifa is on the left. They'll say that it's a, a necessary uh, necessary counterstrike to Trump's fascism, which they still think has come. We're still waiting for that fascism. All we've got so far is a booming economy, great jobs, you know, defense of religious freedom by the government, uh, less regulation, less government intrusion. Uh, but the fascism's got to be coming any day now, despite all that other stuff. That's that's what they want you to. That's what they want you to believe. And John, wh- what do we say to Antifa? By the way, there's one thing they Antifa! need to be told. No, but what do we say to them? He's going home to his mom. There say we hello go. To mommy. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. That's my favorite Trump drop. Uh, so Trump is doing obviously ama- amazing things. Um, but yeah, I mean, Antifa mobs, mobs uh, or jobs, not mobs. Mobs, not jobs. That's the left wing version of things. You know, but Pelosi speaks to this idea that the, that the left are the ones that are really, um, you know, trying to trying to be civil and trying to reach out to the other side. And I, I just don't know how people like that can look in the mirror and, and think that they're not completely insane. I mean, the, the left in the era of Trump has done nothing but agitate and be destructive and be nasty. And, you know, I, I look around that I just think to myself, what do we really have to do to get them to wake up and understand that, you know, Democrats could do so much better. I know we've got the midterms in 24 hours and we're going to see how well they... But they could be they could do so much better if they could just stop being so crazy. That's all they have to do. If Democrats came forward, they said, you know what, guys, we're, we're going to put aside the identity politics for a second here. We still think there's a lot of injustice and all that, but we really want to focus on you know raising the wages of workers. We want to we want to work more within the structure we have of Obamacare to make sure that we're actually incentivizing faster, more efficient, greater delivery of care within the system we have, you know, expand Medicare here and there, expand Medicaid here and there. Uh, you know, we, we'd like to uh, work on making college more affordable by doing the following things. I, and I know that I, I could have a weird argument with myself, which it sounds strange to you on, on all that stuff, but at least those are all serious things. They could do that. I mean, they could be a party of, of real ideas. Essentially, you know, they could be a, a version of, what the right wants for the country. It's just minus the morality and the uh, limited government appeal. But, you know, essentially, well, we're doing a little bit of this, we'll do a little more of this government stuff. You know, well, we're taking taxation this right, we'll tax you a little bit higher. I mean, you know, th- those are real discussions. Instead, we've got to deal with them saying that they think that Trump is a Trump is a Nazi. And this is what they say. Well, here, we've got comparing Trump to Hitler. This is what they do. Play 20. He will be forever remembered as the president who traumatized little children, who purposefully traumatized babies, children, and he traumatized them for his political gain or to look like Kim Jong-un. If you vote for Trump, then you, the voter, you, not Donald Trump, are standing at the border like Nazis to give in the evilness of Donald Trump. This whole administration, these guys are terrorists, right? A white nationalist government that will take children hostage. I call this a concentration camp for kids. Children are being marched away to showers, just like the Nazis. He goes out there and whips up like it's a Mussolini rally. And yes, that's what I said. This is the party of the KKK and the party of Trump. I mean, Joe Scarborough has turned into one of the dumbest people on TV. You know, he's making like 
millions, five, six million dollars a year from what the trades say. I mean, a guy's making all this money. He's a moron. I'm a very stable genius. Yeah, Trump is a very stable genius. Joe Scarborough is an idiot. Uh, to, to compare what the Nazis did with their showers, which, as we know, were actually gas chambers uh, where they would drop Zyklon B in through the ceiling, um, to compare that to sending children and, and people who are being detained at the border to showers to clean themselves so that they can be clean and sanitary and you know feel good and get a good night's sleep and all that is crazy. A normal person would not do that, but that's Joe Scarborough, a multimillionaire TV celebrity. You know, there, there you have it. I mean, this is what we deal with in the era of Trump. We're not even really having a serious conversation with the left about anything. They're hysterical and not in the ha-ha sense. I mean, they have lost it. They are no longer playing the same game we are in terms of governance in this country. They've had a break with reality. They cannot handle Trump. And that's why they're running, comparing him to Hitler. I mean, it's an old cliche that you never compare anybody to Hitler because there's only one Hitler. And, you know, there's really very few people that are even in the same category of, of awfulness and evil to compare Trump to Hitler. So half the country thinks that, that, that the American version of Hitler is doing a really good job. I mean, it's just who, who can take themselves seriously when they say these things? I mean, it's so intellectually sloppy. and so. But then you got people like Pelosi that leads the Democratic Party. This is the thing. The Democratic Party is really just, it's really just a lot of emotions and desire for power wrapped up in political verbiage. But they're just unserious. I, I, fundamentally, the Democrats, and remember this as you cast your vote tomorrow, are unserious people. In May of this year, after President Trump withdrew from the nuclear deal, the Trump administration announced a new strategy to fundamentally alter the behavior of the Islamic Republic of Iran's leadership. At the center of this effort, uh, and there are multiple lines of effort, but at the center of it is an unprecedented campaign of economic pressure. Our objective is to starve the Iranian regime of the revenue it uses to fund violent and destabilizing activities throughout the Middle East and indeed around the world. Our ultimate goal is to convince the regime to abandon its current revolutionary course. Just look at what happened last week. Denmark announced it uncovered an Iranian regime assassination plot on its own soil. The Iranian regime has a choice. It can either do a 180-degree turn from its outlaw course of action and act like a normal country, or it can see its economy crumble. We hope a new agreement with Iran is possible. But until Iran makes changes in the 12 ways that I listed in May, we will be relentless in exerting pressure on the regime. Secretary of State Pompeo is not messing around when it comes to Iran. He understands the nature of this regime that we're up against. He also understands the utter fecklessness. I mean, the just the the naive stupidity of the Obama administration when it came to dealing with Iran. So desperate was the worldly cosmopolitan Obama for some kind of foreign policy legacy that he was willing to essentially sacrifice all other elements of Mideast policy for sure, and really in many ways, global U.S. strategy, wherever it coincided with the Iran deal, it would always be, oh, well, we got to do something. We got to make sure the Iran deal goes through. So the Iran deal was the overarching emphasis of really the last four years of Obama's, or, you know, the second four years of Obama's time in office. And what we see is that it was a bad deal, 
And now the Iranians are paying a price. The Iranians have been told in no uncertain terms that this nonsense is not going to be allowed to continue. And they actually have to change their behavior. And not building nukes and killing U.S. soldiers in Iraq is not enough. They need to start acting like a normal country. Um, and, you know, who knows if the Iranian regime will ever really be able to do that until it finally crumbles and there's a revolution in Iran. And no one knows when that will happen, by the way. I mean, we didn't see the Egyptian revolution coming, and Egypt was a close ally with a lot of, you know, U.S. Uh, engagement on a daily basis. We had a lot of reporters there, very open, a lot of, a lot of tourists there. Obviously, government apparatus very strong between U.S. and, US and Egypt. You know, we had no idea that... Uh, Mubarak was on the way out um, until he was on the way out. Oh, by the way, I, I did get to speak to, uh, let's just work this in on the, on the Iran issue for a second. I, I did get to speak to Vice President Pence about this last week. And here's, uh, here's what the VP had to say, play 12. The president recently got some attention for a retweet uh, dealing with sanctions. And there's a lot of talk now about Iran sanctions and what the future is going to hold for the U.S., Iranian relationship such as it is and what we're going to do going forward. What is the administration's plan for Iran? Well, Iran is the leading state sponsor of terrorism in the world, as you know, Buck. And uh, the president made it clear when, when he ran for this office and every day since that the United States was going to do everything in our power to continue to isolate them economically uh, and diplomatically. Uh, the president uh, withdrew uh, from the Iran nuclear deal and the sanctions that are being reimposed are following through on the promise that the president made. We've also imposed additional sanctions and now when all of these sanctions return and take effect, uh, Iran will be under the most punitive sanctions that they have ever faced. And uh, our hope is as we continue to work with allies across the region, we continue to make it clear to them that their malign activities across the region and around the world will no longer be tolerated that that will uh, will hopefully see the kind of uh, change in Iran's behavior that the world has hoped for for many years. The specifics on those sanctions announced today by uh, Secretary of the Treasury Steve Mnuchin and uh, State, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo uh, covered 50 Iranian banks and their subsidiaries, 200 individuals and shipping vessels. To Iran's national airline, Iran Air, 65 of its aircraft. And we're, we're just, we're telling the Iranians, look, you, you can either play ball like a normal country. It doesn't mean it to be perfect, by the way. I mean, look at the Saudis, right? Oh, my gosh. No one's expecting Iran to turn into Switzerland. But you just can't use terrorist armies all across the Mideast as your own personal proxy force. You can't try to, you know, assassinate foreign ambassadors in, in other countries uh, just because you feel like it. Either there's so you can't shelter Al Qaeda and get away with it. I mean, there's so much stuff that the Iranians do. The Iranian regime, right? We always we always do separate the Iranian people from their government. Their government is just garbage, though. It really is. It's a it's an evil government. I mean, it's a government of bad people, and uh, anybody with real power in that government and in that apparatus should be ashamed. But of course, they're not because they've been brainwashed with this uh, Islamist revolutionary nonsense. You know, all these countries that adopt these hardline Islamist policies, by the way, they're all, they're all miserable places. That's one thing that's, I think, uh, notable. And we, we should not feel the need to just skip past that. It really is the case. You know, all these countries um, where, you know, you have very strict 
Islamist interpretations uh, of the, well, strict interpretations of the Sharia and, and any implementation of it, uh, it, it just ends up being a place where really nobody wants to live. It's just not a nice place to be. Uh, and that's not an accident. But anyway, Ir- Iran is a country that has now been put on notice and the Trump administration saying, you're going to have to be better or you're going to suffer. You know, there's a new sheriff in town. It's not the Obama administration. You don't just get to make empty promises and not have to do anything and keep acting in this really provocative and destructive way all over the world and not feel like you're suffering any consequences from it. That's just not, it's just not acceptable. You know, it's just not something that this administration will stand for. So it's so funny. I mean, foreign policy is the area where Trump was supposed to be the most in over his head, but turns out that taking a common sense approach to America and how it deals with the world is a smart thing to do. Wow. With all the recent news about online security breaches, you have to be aware of where your data is going and who might be accessing it. And, you know, every time you make an online purchase or do anything really online, your private information gets put at risk. Take action to protect yourself with ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is a virtual private network that lets you use apps seamlessly running in the background of your computer, phone, and tablet, and it protects your information. This keeps you secure when you're online. Costs less than $7 a month to protect yourself. If you ever use public Wi-Fi and you want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your stuff, ExpressVPN is what you need. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash buck. That's expressvpn.com slash buck for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash buck to learn more. I love the spirit of Oprah's speech today, who is an independent. She's sick of political parties like me. I've been an independent for a long time. Don't don't I own my own mind and my own vote and don't tell me who to vote for. There you have it, folks. CNN still clinging, courtesy of Don Lemon there, to this notion that uh, that they're independent, that they're beyond party politics, that they're nonpartisan. This is the the loser's lament in politics today on the left. Whenever they can't get what they want, then they retreat into this, well, we're nonpartisan, or we're beyond, the parties are broken, the system is broken, blah, 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 wah, wah. This is important for everyone to remember. Journalists who, who, who proclaim that they are registered independents are overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly engaged in fraud. Uh, I mean, they are lying. They are, they are misleading the public. They do this because they're like, well, how can you criticize me for being a partisan when I'm a registered independent? As if that means anything. And, you know, yeah, in some places, because of, you know, the open primary stuff and whatever, there's some reason to be an independent. But do you know that that of journalists with political affiliation, half, half register as independents? I saw that the other day. I love that. Oh, yeah. They're also independent minded. They're above party. It's it's all a sham, folks. It's all a sham. They're just Democrats who don't have the don't have the gall to be honest about it. They're just lefties who want to play this game like there's something else, but we all know they're not. We all know who they are. And I, and I just I would just prefer honesty from them about this. I really would. I would much rather them just say, I am a Democrat activist, and this is how 
I, you know, this is how I approach things. And no, 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 they, they can't do that though. But they, they, Don Lemon, you know, what, what would be really funny is if we get Don Lemon to answer, when was the last time you, Mr. Independent, when was the last time you voted and didn't vote for a Democrat? Uh, I, I think it would be back in like the Nixon era. Oh, yes. Yeah, some, some of you are like, Buck, that Don Lemon's actually surprisingly, uh, he's older than you guys might think. Producer Mike, how old is Don Lemon? He's a guy, so we're allowed to talk about his age. It's not nice to talk about a uh, you know, lady's age. That's unacceptable. Okay, fine. John, how old is Don Lemon? John? Oh, look at you. Go. He's 50, but look at you. He might be 51 now. You went even above where I would go. Wow, I'm going to tell Don you said that. He's going to be very upset with you. Uh, yeah, so he, he says he's an independent. Speaking of the independence of the press, which I can't even say it without it being kind of ridiculous. Um, speaking of the independence of the press, you had uh, Stephanopoulos talking to Stacey Abrams. She's become one of these celebrity candidates. Uh, look, I get it. Historic, groundbreaking, first black uh, first black female governor in the whole country. And, you know, she's running in this race in Georgia. And I know people are all, Oprah's gone door to door. Will Ferrell was stumping for the whole thing. And, and there's some group out there, and I mean like, a, you know, living in a commune, white supremacist losers. And I know that anytime now anyone brings up false flag, we always get in all this trouble. I'm not saying there aren't white supremacist losers out there. There clearly are, and they aren't communes. But this just becomes a little too, it, it feels like it, it will become, if it's not already, it will become a little too convenient that you have these mailers and robocalls that are just horrifically racist and that automatically get blamed on Republicans. You know, that anytime you have somebody who wants uh, to to sully the GOP in a state or in a district, all, all you have to do is have these. And you could do this anonymously very easily. Right. Robocalls from spoofed numbers. I mean, this is not hard to do. I mean, people do this all the time with, you know, you know, I've, I've gotten the, these robocalls that drive me insane uh, that are, you know, hi, it's Sally. I want to offer you a cruise. It's like, no, Sally, you're a robocall. You don't want to offer me a cruise. Why are you lying to me about this? Anyway, but so there's this call, and I'm not going to play it because, I mean, it's it's the mo- it's true, like, you know, old school KKK style racist, really bad stuff. It's not what the Democrats say is racist, which is often just, you know, whatever they don't like. I mean, this is actually racist in a really in a really bad way. But, you know, now, now you've got and they're not even based from what I understand this, this white supremacist group. They're not even based in Georgia. They're just put piping in these uh, these robocalls. But this now becomes an opportunity. It's kind of like the, the David Duke phenomenon right now. The GOP has to always apologize. And, and Abrams's opponent has had to denounce this stuff. But why does he have to denounce a bunch of losers that aren't acting on his behalf or the GOP's behalf? You know, why is that on him? You know? Yeah, we would all denounce it. I mean, it's it's not it's not a close call. It's not a hard thing to do. But Stephanopoulos, uh, this is a very interesting the way he he poses this one. Play this is how Stephanopoulos talked to uh, Abrams, this candidate in Georgia. She's African American female. Could be the first African American, uh, definitely the first female African American governor in the country. Maybe the first African American governor in the country. I, I'll have to check on that. Definitely the first female African American though. But here's what Stephanopoulos had to say on ABC Play 9. Are you concerned these racist appeals are going to work? What I'm concerned about is that his overarching architecture of voter suppression, of ostracization, of demeaning and dehumanizing people, that that can cause 
people to think that their votes don't count, which is why we've been so aggressive about telling people the best antidote to his antics is to actually turn out and engage. And we've seen unprecedented voter turnout because people understand that education and jobs and access to affordable health care are on the ballot this year and that I'm the only candidate with a comprehensive plan for how we move our state forward together. Now, it's a little bit subtle there. But Stephanopoulos is asking about whether Abrams is concerned that these racist, and as I said, they are truly racist, these racist robocalls, and there's this one that I know of, um, will work. That's Stephanopoulos really saying, how concerned are you that a bunch of, you know, redneck, dumb hillbillies are going to vote against you or, you know, vote for your opponent because of this racism Essentially saying, you know, because the GOP is racist. And then she continues on with this whole, well, my opponent, you know, Kemp is bad because blah, 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 blah. Kemp has nothing to do with this robocall. The state GOP has nothing to do with this robocall. I mean, this is, this would be like somebody, this this would be like me, you know, calling up or, you know, if, if I went on CNN and, and I was about to debate one of their, you know, half-wit anchors, and I said to them, well, you know, what do you think about this hate mail email that I got from some left winger and like hurt my family members or something? You know, what do you think about that? And that person would probably say, uh, well, I have nothing to do with like, what. Why do I have to apologize for that? I'm not I'm not responsible for that. Oh, but see, now you're talking about what you aren't responsible for when it comes to some hateful, terrible, disgusting act. Right. See how they do that. Stephanopoulos asks about some racist robocall has nothing to do with Kemp. And essentially pins it on how the GOP, it's going to work with the GOP because they're a bunch of racists, even though they have nothing to do with it. And then and then Abrams goes, yeah, well, you know, Kemp is pretty disgusting and this kind of stuff has been what he's doing. It's like, wait, this is it's just smears, folks. It's just a smear tactic. And this is how desperate they are on the left. They're they're really deeply concerned that uh, that if they don't win at least the House, you know, they're not going to be able to handle it. You might have heard me talk about Black Rifle Coffee before, but I drink it every day. So I feel like every person that listens to the show needs to get on the Black Rifle Coffee train with me. This stuff is delicious. I drank it today black. Every morning I'm at the office. What do I do? I have a K-cup of delicious Black Rifle Coffee, and there's all these different excellent blends. I mix and match a little bit, but I get it delivered to my door every month, so it couldn't be any easier. Now, Black Rifle Coffee is a veteran-owned and operated company founded by special operations vets, by the way, and it gives a portion of all sales to veteran and first responder causes. So this is a company that loves freedom, loves America, loves our vets, and make sure you're drinking delicious coffee delivered right to your door. This Veterans Day, get your coffee from Black Rifle Coffee and contribute to a company that's actually making a difference in the veteran community. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Receive 15% off your order. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. A hate crime in New York City made some headlines over the weekend. You have a 26-year-old man who was charged with vandalizing a historic New York City synagogue on Friday. And that was just a few days in the aftermath of the horrific shooting in Pittsburgh. And, you know, this is one of these stories where people said, uh, you know, initially, um, maybe this was a, you know, a guy who was, well, who right wing, who was a white nationalist. And, you know, you saw this stuff online. 
And uh, then what I think you, you find surprising is, oh, oh, the media has got an issue here. Because it turns out that this individual who engaged in this uh, hate crime band vandalization, vandalizing, who wrote, Jews better get ready and die, Jew rats die, we are here uh, in the synagogue in Brooklyn. This guy is not a white nationalist. In fact, he's not white. Um, he is an African-American and... Uh, of interest, I think, to, to many of you might be that he was a, a Democratic activist. He's a Democrat, an activist. He volunteered for Obama's presidential campaign. And this is the really interesting little, little bit of data about this individual. He was a former City Hall volunteer who worked on, get ready for it, combating hate crimes. Okay. So this guy, and the initial news reports, which CNN left all this out of its initial reporting. Now they've updated it because people pointed out, wow, you really don't do reporting, do you? You kind of just, you know, stick to a narrative. But CNN initially reported on this. The guy's name is James Polite. And he, uh, you know, he's a Democrat. He's a leftist. He volunteered for Obama. And he was an intern at City Hall, worked on combating hate crimes. I, what is this, right? I mean, how could somebody who's supposed to be at least outwardly working so hard to combat hate, how could that person do something so so grotesque? I mean, it's you know, it's terrible anytime, but right after this attack in Pittsburgh where so many people, 11, 11 of our Jewish brothers and sisters were gunned down in cold blood, who would do such a thing? Oh, a leftist activist. Uh, who's who's a black guy, by the way, which only matters insofar as he's not a white guy, which means I'm I'm pretty sure we could all agree he's not a white nationalist. But you know that then again, I you know I don't want to get too far ahead of things here. You know you you do you know you, you do have the possibility of somebody who um, you know uh, b- breaks with stereotype and their ideology, and I don't know. Uh, but it also came when there was a piece. I mean, this was right. Uh, a day or two before, there was a piece that was, um, is it safe to be Jewish in New York? That was written. And and it talks about all, all these different anti-Jewish hate crimes in New York City. And again, hate crimes are terrible. People should not hate anybody for their religion or their belief or who they are or what they look like or anything like that. And anyone who commits crimes should be punished, okay? Harassing people, defacing, defacing things. I'm actually not somebody as a general principle who really believes in hate crimes, meaning enhancement for a crime based upon a protected class of the person. I believe there are crimes. We are all individuals who have the same rights under the law. And whether somebody breaks into my home and, you know, paints uh, some kind of pastoral scene on my wall or they uh, paint something that's, you know, that's scary, I mean, unless it's an imminent death threat or something. Uh, you know, it's it's vandalism to me. I, I don't agree. This is a philosophical position. I know people get very mad at me when I say this. That's fine. I don't believe that hate crime enhancements are, are something we should have in the law because there are protected classes and unprotected classes. And you go into this whole, well, is the person hateful or are they just a murderer? Well, if they're a murderer, I think we can lock them up long enough to punish them. Anyway, that's a little separate from this, though. Uh, this This story, though, in the New York Times was about how there are all these hate crimes against uh, Jewish people in New York City, which is 
surprising to some, is New York is the largest single urban concentration of of Jews outside of Israel. Um, and you know, my first girlfriend in high school was Jewish. Uh, a, a lot of you know, a lot of my family members went to predominantly, or at least a couple of my siblings uh, went to predominantly Jewish high schools. I mean, you know, Judaism in New York City are are you know this this is a place where people think of as it being very welcoming and 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 open and a and a home for Jews from all from all over the world from New York etc. Um, and yet a lot of anti-Semitism in New York City, and this story goes through some of it. In fact, when you look at the numbers, there have been uh, many more hate crimes in the last uh, couple of years. Four times as many hate crimes motivated by bias against Jews as there have been against black people, according to this New York Times piece. Hate crimes against Jews have outnumbered hate crimes targeted at transgender people by a factor of 20. Now, part of it is there are a lot more Jewish uh, Jewish New York City residents than there are transgender people, but there's clearly a lot of anti-Semitic stuff going on, a lot of anti-Semitic hate crimes. But here's what I find so interesting about this piece. You know, why am I telling you about this? Not just because, you know, yes, anti-Semitism is very real. We need to combat it. We need to be on the lookout for it. Uh, and it's vile, and it's always also anti-Semitism is really the the wellspring of of so many, and and really all hatreds when it comes to politics and religion and ethnicity. I mean, it starts with anti-Semitism, and next next thing you know, you know they're they're going after lots of other people too. It's it's just the the scapegoating. I mean, historically, you look at this, and, and anti-Semitism is the beginning of so many evils and so many ills, but. What this piece doesn't tell you until at the very pretty much bottom of this, uh, very low in this piece, is that it has to tell you, oh, that's right, the anti-Semitism in New York, none of it was right-wing white guys. None of it. Here's the here's what it says, according to the Hate Crimes Task Force of the NYPD, quote, if anti-Semitism bypasses consideration as a serious problem in New York, it is, to, it is so to some extent because it refuses to conform to an easy narrative with a single ideological enemy. During the past 22 months, not one person caught or identified as the aggressor in an anti-Semitic hate crime has been associated with a far right wing group. Not one. OK, there have been 140 attacks against Jewish people that are categorized by the NYPD, not by the Southern Poverty uh, Delusion Center, uh, you know, not, not one of these left-wing groups that is just now on the attack against conservatives all the time and really have nothing to do with combating hate. This is the NYPD, not a single right-wing attacker of Jews in New York City. That seems pretty notable to me. What's so interesting is that the New York Times, when they're writing about this, remember, the New York Times is based in New York City, so... It does have a New York focus, even though it's a national paper. They're they're immediately befuddled by this. They're like, well, it's so strange because, you know, anti-Semitism is, of course, primarily on the right. And yet there's almost no right wing anti-Semitism to speak of in terms of hate crimes or attacks in almost two years in New York City. That's a long stretch. Not one, folks. It's not that there's not a lot of it or that there's a disproportionate percentage of not one. Here's another thing that I can note for all of you. A lot of anti-Semitism actually comes from within the Islamic community. Now, the Islamic community is also predominantly non-white minority, and so there's an ethnic component. And so in left in the left-wing view, 
there is a special level of protection that is needed for the Islamic community or or there are a different set of standards when we're talking about political correctness that applies to the Islamic community. But they always get a little bit uncomfortable on the left talking about anti-Jewish bigotry by Muslims. Because here's another part about this. Yes, there are, you know, all caveats are in place. The vast majority of you know, Muslim Americans are not anti-Semitic, and that would not be fair to say. But if you want to talk about anti-Semitism as an, you know, where anti-Semitism thrives as an ideology and on a global scale, the mother load of anti-Semitism uh, is within Islamism and radical Islam. The mother, I mean, it's not even close. And there's some spillover even into America of that. Media doesn't want to talk about it very much, but it's true. You know, spend five minutes walking around talking to people on a street corner in Cairo and you'll see what I mean. But uh, a little bit of a surprise, I guess, when it comes to hate crimes for the left. You know, the numbers are surprising to them. Save the climate, eat less red meat. Another one of these crazy stories that you see today. Uh, this one this one I saw from Bloomberg. It's actually from a few days ago, but it's about dietary change, substantially reducing greenhouse gases. And their main photo is just all these delicious marbleized red meats. You got New York strips. Looks like you got a couple of porterhouses in there, maybe even a ribeye. I mean, eh, the meat looks amazing. That's how I know that global warming's not real. Because if it requires me to stop eating red meat, we're all going to die. And we're not all going to die, so it's all going to be okay. It reminds me, though, that uh, I, I'm i a big believer in failure as a necessary part of achieving success in anything. And it's not just, people who say, don't be afraid to fail. No, no, no. Just, just assume you're going to fail with some things. I mean, try not to, but assume you will. And that's certainly the case with me, with all my kitchen adventures, my, my culinary expeditions that I go on. And you have to remember that I can't make this stuff for Miss Molly or anybody else without trying it out myself. So I told you, because I like to share my successes and my failures with you all, that I got, so I went to the specialty butcher in the hipster part of Brooklyn. I mean like handlebar mustache, tight jeans, ironic tattoos on the forearms and neck, but the guy's name is, you know, Winthrop, uh, I went to that part of, of D.C., which which exists now. It didn't, it didn't used to exist. There's a hipster part of D.C. to go to a specialty butcher, and I got these delicious bone-in pork chops. I mean, these things were, mwah, they were magnifique. Uh, they, just, they just looked pretty. I mean, you look at them like, oh, all that, all that delicious fat and flavoring they've got going on. It just looks so good. And I got two of them, and I, and I, of course, put them in the freezer right away because I very much believe in, uh, freezing meat and then thawing it out as needed because otherwise, unless you're going to cook it in the first 48 hours, I think you start to see deterioration. So I, I cooked my first pork chop and, and I made a total, a total disaster of it. I mean, I, I, and, and what I really realized was that it was in some of the basic prep things. Like I got a little lazy as I was mincing my garlic and I didn't cut it thinly enough. And with the problem when you have chunky garlic is one, now you got little garlic chunks and, and two, if the garlic then, if the chunks are supposed to be part of a marinade and they kind of coat the meat, it can prevent the meat from being fully in contact with the, the heat of the pan, right? You get uneven heat, I should say. And you also get these chunks of black garlic that's been, that have been burned and 
because you haven't really mixed it in with the sauce. And anyway, it was a disaster. I mean, it was, I ate it, of course, because, you know, I mean, I'm not a savage. I'm not going to waste a delicious bone-in pork chop. I don't care how badly I cooked it. But this weekend, I adjusted the recipe. I figured, all right, one thing is I'm going to go, I'm going to really take the time and mince properly. I'm going to sharpen up the chef knife beforehand, which I did. And I minced up that garlic. And by the way, you got to go very fine on the mincing. And one thing I've learned is it looks so cool on TV to go, you know, chop, 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 chop. If you got to go a little slow, if you're like me and you have to mince like an old lady, you know what? Lean into it. You know, you do you. So I, I, but I minced that garlic. I got very, very fine. And, and then also with uh, ginger, because I changed my recipe from being just kind of a general herb and spice rub to being a honey, yeah, that's right, honey ginger uh, marinade. And uh, I made this honey ginger marinade. And oh, I shouldn't, I'm not even sure it's a marinade. It's really a sauce more than a marinade because I kind of cooked it in the pan after. So I, I did the ginger very, very, very uh, fine. Uh, same thing with the garlic, a little bit of honey, uh, so obviously some, some salt, some pepper, a little bit of oil, and I'll mix it all in. And, and then I just, you know, essentially, not flash fried, but kind of close in that sauce with my pork chop, I will tell you, I crushed it, man. I, I came back, I came back strong. So this is my little my little word of encouragement to those of you who are trying to expand your mind or your skill set in any number of ways. Use that moment of, of whatever your, your failure is. Use that blackened, tar-tasting pork chop and learn from it and make a delicious honey-glazed, perfectly seared, Oh my gosh, this would cost $30 in a restaurant pork chop. You know what I mean? That's some of you are like, buck, $30? No, really, in DC, that's what it would cost. So I was very pleased with myself. Uh, and other than that, you know, I had a, a quiet weekend. I watched The Thing with Kurt Russell, which I have to say was pretty entertaining. Held up pretty well. I wanted to watch something that was kind of an escapist horror movie. And I could say that uh, not bad for 1982, Kurt Russell. Pretty good stuff. Roll call is up next. The show ain't over yet, folks. It's time for Roll Call. Ah, yes, team, I have missed you all so, and that is why I am especially excited to get into today's Roll Call. Although I'm very pleased that the overwhelming feedback that I've received is that Raheem did a great job at the helm of the Freedom Hut for the evening. So we are hoping, although he's a very busy man, we are hoping that we'll be able to get Raheem in our regular uh, guest host rotation because he did such a good job. And I always find Raheem very, very insightful and, and amusing, which is uh, important for radio. Uh, hold on a second. Here we go. Um, Richard writes the following. Buck, you've been saying that Ted Cruz will win by 10 points. Don't forget the boost he will get for people voting straight ticket for our incredible Governor Abbott. Well, Richard, you know, my my Ted Cruz will win by 10 points prediction is, as these things go, um, I wouldn't say bold, but definitely beyond where most folks are on this issue. So if, if I'm, in fact, underestimating what a blowout in favor of Cruz it will be, that sounds like great news, but I can't say I'm quite as confident as, uh, as you are that it will be more than 10. I'm confident Ted Cruz will win, but 10's a lot given the amount of money that the Democrats have piled into this race. They really want to make 
a statement about how Beto can win, how Robert O'Rourke is a national political figure. Uh, Susie writes, you must watch opening scenes of Beautiful Blonde Bashful Bend 1949 for the best reasoning for guns Hollywood ever put out. Uh, Susie and Andy, I have no idea what you're talking about, but uh, I will look into this and appreciate it. Erwin writes, writes, Buck, really enjoyed your guest host, Raheem Kassam, on Friday. If I were you, I would make him a permanent fixture whenever you are unavailable. Well, Erwin, as you heard me from the start, that is our plan, and uh, we're hoping to get a really great uh, crew that can fill in, you know, folks that can fill in and, and get a rotation, because I'm going to be out for a few days, certainly around Christmas time and, and all the rest of it. So uh, we want to make sure we've got great people who have the mic in the hut. Um, and here we go. Rita, right? Shields high, Buck, and welcome back. Does it drive you nuts that there are people who still have not decided for whom they will vote? It's like trying to get a group of women to pick a spot for lunch. They don't care where we go as long as it's nowhere anywhere and suggests. I'm not being uh, sexist. I simply have no idea how men choose lunch spots. Remember, vote early and often from Rita. Rita, thank you, and that was amusing. And I will say that I do I do get reminded sometimes when I'm dealing with Miss Molly. I say, where do you want to go? She goes, I don't care. And then I'll say, okay, what about this place? She goes, well, I don't know if I want to go there. So I don't care doesn't always mean I don't care. There's that. Kim writes, hey, Buck, original Saturday squad here, OSS. I'm a podcast listener. First, I just wanted to say thank you for not, always, for not only a great show like always, but making sure that all the podcasts are available. I'm slowly but surely catching up on podcasts after having to take a hiatus for a while due to the death of a family member. Oh, man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that, Kim. Uh, I'm uh, What do we have? Here? Oh, yes. Secondly, I want to bring this story to your attention in case you haven't heard it. Utah Mayor Brent Taylor was killed while serving his country in the Utah National Guard in Afghanistan. I hope you can take time to highlight him on your show. Here's a link to the story. Uh, I did not know about Brent Taylor, Kim. Uh, so thank you for bringing to my attention. I will read up on it. And uh, yeah, it seems here from the story you sent me that the mayor of North Ogden, Brent Taylor, was killed while serving his country in Afghanistan. You know, these should be news stories that get that get more attention because one, we, we owe it to those who are serving and their families to remind ourselves that they are serving and that their families are also engaged in that service too, in the sense that they are their support network here at home. And, you know, they, they play a very large role in all this. And also we should be aware of casualties and, and the losses, the human losses, uh, our, our brothers and sisters in uniform that are still ongoing in Afghanistan in particular, Iraq less so, but still also happening in Iraq and Syria, because if we're going to have sound policy on these issues, we need to understand what the real stakes are, what the real losses are. Jeff writes, but Sexton mentioned a show he was enjoying on Netflix last week. Can you tell me what the name of that show was? Uh, but sexual or what was it? What was the... Uh, I can't remember what it was. That that little kid, though, was the cutest. That was the cutest roll call among the cutest roll call messages I've ever received. It might be number one, but I'd have to think about it for a little while. The show that I like on Netflix, Jeff, is Peaky Blinders. Highly, highly recommend. 
very, very well done. The music is really good. The, the costuming and scene, uh, you know, the uh, cinematography and the acting. It's just a very, very well put on show. And so it's, it's cool. It's creative. Uh, a little bleak, a little violent, but, but it is good. And the other show that I've been watching is uh, Daredevil on net, the third season of Daredevil, which I will say this, it is so much better than Iron Fist, which thank heavens Netflix terminated as a series. Iron Fist was an unwatchable pile of garbage. But the third Daredevil, I think it's been a little plodding, a little slow, and it's getting better toward the end, but not that much in the way of really great action. And a lot of like, I'm Daredevil, I'm just whiny and everything's too hard for me. You know, I don't really like my superheroes to do too much of the brooding, oh, I need to make a comeback thing. You know, I'd like a little more superhero and a little less, you know, I'm a Beto O'Rourke supporter and he didn't win the election. So I'm just really upset and my name's Daredevil. It was a lot of that. I mean, he doesn't actually talk about Beto, but you know what I'm saying. A little too much self-pity. Uh... What is next here? We have uh, Michael, who writes, You made the top story on Drudge. Look at you go, bub. You deserve what you get in a good way. Thank you, Michael. And yes, indeed, my interview with the vice president, uh, Mike Pence, was number one on Drudge for uh, over 24 hours over the weekend, which was pretty cool. It's nice to do an interview like that and, and see that it's, of such high news interest to so many people. I, I do I do appreciate it. I do enjoy the fact that, you know, sometimes the work really does get out there in a big way. And, you know, my interview with the vice president was really interesting. He's such a, such a nice guy. And, you know, my favorite thing of all is that he wished my incredible, amazing mother a happy birthday on video, which was just really cool. You know, he could have said, oh, Buck, you know, we're really tight on schedule here or whatever. He did a little video saying happy birthday to my very dear mother and uh, called her a great American. And, you know, Pence has got my vote for 2024. It's all I can tell you. I was, I really, it was a very kind thing to do. Look, I know he's a politician. I know that they know these things. They know how to work the crowd and all that. But, you know, he didn't have to say that and he did. And I really, and, you know, I appreciated it. My mom, my family, we all did. So Mike Pence gets uh, two thumbs, two thumbs way up from me. Cheryl writes, hey, Buck, hope you're having a good day away from the hut. Enjoyed Raheem's program. The guests were enlightening. I was educated on many subjects by their discussion. Shields high. Well, Cheryl, I'm, I'm glad that you're part of this overall uh, overall consensus here that Raheem did a great job. And I knew he would, and that's why I asked Raheem to, to pinch hit. I knew he would step up to the plate and, and be very, very solid. So I'm glad that that, uh, glad that that went as well as it did. Jar writes, I'm a day behind, so I'm sure I'll hear today that someone has corrected your producer about Kansas City and it's distance from Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, if not, they share a border. Yeah, Jar. So I got to This was a little embarrassing. A lot of you lit me up on the comments. And I deserve it because, I mean, this is embarrassing. I should be better at U.S. geography than I am sometimes. Uh, but what happened was that I sent her, I thought I sent her the uh, airport for Kansas City, Kansas. What I sent her was the airport for St. Louis, Missouri which is quite a ways from Kansas City, Missouri. So I sent the wrong airport to her or the, you know, the, wrong, uh, the wrong airport code or whatever to, my, uh, to, help her, to help me book my initial flights and stuff because she was running all of our logistics for the trip. And uh, I, I, I got confused. So yes, 
Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri are the same city broken up by a river, which kind of reminds me a little bit of, this is what I initially thought, was that it's like Minneapolis, St. Paul, which I know are twin cities. They're not the same city, but they're right next to each other. So there you have it. Um, yes, all of you who wrote me, you're correct. I, I messed that one up. Uh, sometimes it happens. Alan writes, hey, Buck, I love to listen to you. I learn a lot. Having said that, I want to cut to the chase. Gathering from what I hear you say in your program, you must be a badass. Can you please take on the Michael Avenatti offer to match up against Donald J- Trump Jr.? First of all, he would never take the challenge against you, but by making the offer, there's no way he can lose. He looks spineless if he rejects the offer and gets his butt kicked by Buck if he does. Um, Alan, is I'm, I'm not aware of this. Did, did Avenatti say he wanted to MMA fight somebody? That'd be kind of interesting. I'd have, I wonder what Avenatti's weight class is. If we were roughly in the same weight class and we were going to raise a lot of money uh, for charity, uh, that would be interesting. Um, I am I am very confident that I would uh, I would be able to take him, uh, but I might be uh, I might be out of his weight class. Um, I would just I'm, I'm I weigh in. I know that this is surprising to some of you. Whenever I say this, I'm six feet tall and two hundred pounds. So I, I think some of you think that I'm because I have this boyish charm about me or something i don't know but you, you, people see me sometimes and they go oh you know I, I i didn't i thought you'd be smaller you know i'm like no i'm not i'm not small so there's that um but yeah uh alan i don't think it's gonna happen but i like i like where your head's at you're a creative guy so uh what do we do here don writes buck please use the term leftist rather than liberals tell pence to do the same there is nothing related to liberty for the leftist shields high. You know, Don, I did that for a long time, but I couldn't get people to agree with me and have it really catch on. So I abandoned my quest to call them leftists because they are leftists. So that's, um, I'm with you on all that. Um, TJ writes, Kansas City, Kansas is right across the river from Kansas City, Missouri. Definitely not three hours. I know you are correct. I'm sorry that I missed that one. And shields high to you, my friend. And with that, I think it's a perfect place to say, team, I'm with you every day this week in the hut. Shields high.